shot. Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores. It's Pula again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. We here in North America live on stolen land. Sure, we may love the places we're from and feel a sense of hometown pride or belonging, and that's totally fine. But fundamentally, this continent, what the First Nations call Turtle Island, is colonized, stolen territory. So why bring this up in a hockey podcast? What the hell does colonization have to do with sports anyways? Well, the answer, my friends, is a lot. We living here in Canada say that hockey is our game. It may not officially be our national sport, but if you sit down and strike up a conversation with someone in a Tim Hortons anywhere from Cape Breton to Calgary to Kelowna, they're either going to argue with you passionately about the team they cheer for, or they might only know a thing or two about the sport, but it's a general conversation starter in this country. As the saying goes, and it's kind of true in my case, Kids in Canada learn to skate before they learn to walk. So what does it mean for hockey that we call it our game, but this very nation where we live, Canada, is occupied Indigenous territory? It means we need to take a deep examination of the game, its roots, and the way it's used not only to lift up communities across the country, but also the ways it's been used almost as a weapon against First Nations peoples. And that's what we're going to explore on this first edition of Changing on the Fly. Now, don't get me wrong. People of all walks of life and races are deeply into hockey in Canada, most certainly Indigenous communities. But that doesn't mean that everyone has had the same positive experience of the sport. On this episode of Changing on the Fly, we're going to hear from a few different Indigenous voices who all have a ton of interesting things to say about First Nations people and their place in hockey. Some of you out there might have heard of the novel Indian Horse by the late Ojibwe author Richard Wagamese. It's actually been adapted into a film released earlier this year. But that book, Indian Horse, is probably the one text that inspired me the most to start this podcast. The book follows the story of Saul Indian Horse, a young native kid from northern Ontario who, like so many kids from his generation, was kidnapped from his family by Indian agents at a young age and put in a residential school. What's your name? Saul. You speak English very good. My father taught me. And he gave you a fine biblical name. What is your name? In English, please. Let's try again. What's your name? Do you know it? Lonnie. Hmm. You'll need something more suitable than that. 
At the residential school, he suffers deep abuse and trauma, but is also taught to play hockey by one of the priests. Saul gets good, like really good, and eventually works his way up to nearly the ranks of playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs in the NHL, but then he's forced to relive the abuse he suffered again and again. While Indian Horse is a work of fiction, the story is strikingly similar to so many experiences of Indigenous hockey players in Canada. Take, for example, Fred Sasakamus, widely regarded as the first Indigenous person to ever play in the NHL. Sasakamus also learned to play hockey in a residential school in Saskatchewan and also suffered greatly there. He was presented with the Order of Canada in 2017 for his work not only in raising awareness about the horrors of this system, but also for his work in empowering a new generation of native hockey players. So hockey and its appearance in residential schools definitely warrants a closer look, because we as a country have not fully moved on from the pain of this colonial system, and we need to understand where sport fits into this fabric. So the first person we're going to hear from is Brayden Tahiwi. Tahiwi is an assistant professor in the School of Kinesiology at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Now, he isn't a hockey player, or even really a hockey fan himself, but he is from the indigenous Maori nation of what we call New Zealand today. And he did an amazing historical study looking at a hockey team, the Sioux Blackhawks, at the Pelican Lake Indian Residential School in northern Ontario. The paper is called a rink at the school is almost as essential as a classroom. In it, he argues that hockey was used as a tool of control and assimilation, and I started by asking him about that. Yeah, so uh, this particular paper we focused on, as you mentioned, one uh, particular school, um, uh, Pelican Lake Indian Residential School, uh, which was also known as Sioux Lookout Indian Residential School. Um, and so we were looking at um, archival documents uh, that were largely written by um, uh, the government officials who were connected to the school uh, and also the local um, people working at the school, uh, the teachers, the principals, uh, and some of uh, the church representatives connected to the school. So we were trying to capture uh, their understanding and their purpose uh, behind uh, the development of hockey. And so at this particular uh, period of time, uh, there wasn't a lot of hockey happening at the school uh, uh, prior to the late 1940s. Uh, they did have a rink uh, on the lake, um, but they struggled to have uh, equipment, uh, skates and so on. And so it was uh, seldom offered um, and, and there wasn't much of a kind of a hockey program up to the date in the late 1940s where they, they, they built their own uh, rink uh, on the school property uh, and so they could have uh, more regular access and they then developed uh, their hockey team. And so at this point in time at the school, there were a lot of discipline problems. Um, and so uh, there were uh, a lot of kids that were uh, seen as ill-disciplined, they weren't listening. Um, that kind of context made it harder to learn, it made it harder to control the students. Um, and so uh, what they, what the, the local uh, school administrators found was that the development of uh, the rink, um, the development of the school hockey team, and also people uh, participating in hockey and just skating um, brought about uh, a measure of control, that the students started to behave better, 
uh, and behave more disciplined. And so they didn't have to worry about trying to control the students. They could kind of go about and do a better job um, in their eyes of the work they were trying to do in terms of um, in part Christian ideals, uh, teach the uh, English language and the academic curriculum and so on. So there's this kind of uh, indirect benefit uh, that they saw from hockey, that the students become more disciplined, more well behaved, uh, and so that they could then go about their business um, uh, of the residential school education. And so this, from their eyes, helped them to kind of control the students. And they used um, uh, runaways as one kind of key uh, measure or yardstick uh, of uh, student retaliation to their, to their experiences there. And so there were a lot of problems in the school system. Uh, there was a lot of health problems. Children were hungry. Children were upset. Uh, there was a lot of abuse. Uh, and so they were unhappy at life and, and often tried to run away. And so um, uh, the local administrators, uh, the principals, the local Indian agent uh, had spoken about how uh, there was a lack of runaways and they kind of were attributing this to the development of hockey uh, within the school. So that was one of the key kind of storylines that we had developed uh, from our reading uh, of those local school administrators um, that hockey was able to develop a sense of uh, more control over the students uh, as they kind of um, uh, participated in, in the skating uh, and uh, in hockey. With this enhanced control, those kinds of assimilation um, intent or purpose behind what uh, the school was trying to do was kind of facilitated in a way um, that they weren't able to do prior to the development of the hockey team and, and the development of the rink. So there's another really fascinating aspect to this paper, and that's uh, a tour that happened uh, with the hockey team that uh, that your paper looks at. So this is in 1951, the Residential Schools Administration and the Anglican Church brought the team, so the, the, the Sioux Blackhawks, uh, on this lavish tour around southern Ontario where they stayed in fancy hotels. They even got to play at uh, the famed Maple Leaf Gardens where the Toronto Maple Leafs used to play. So can you talk a little bit more about that tour and like what was the goal of the tour and how did it actually end up serving the residential school's colonial interest? Yeah, uh, so that was a, a kind of a fascinating story that came out um, of uh, the, the history of that school. And so the team had been around for a couple of years and they'd become really competitive and started to beat the local teams uh, in the Sioux Lookout area. Um, and then there were a couple um, of uh, federal ministers that were in the region opening an Indian hospital, local Indian hospital in Sioux Lookout. Uh, and they saw the team and they thought they'd kind of started this idea of uh, the team should tour uh, southern Ontario. And so the boys, uh, like you mentioned, were taken, uh, well, left their uh, school uh, and went to southern Ontario. They played in both uh, Ottawa and also in Toronto. Um, they, like you said, they stayed at fancy hotels. They met with uh, local dignitaries. Um, they met, for example, with the, the Premier uh, of Ontario. Uh, they visited parliamentary buildings, uh, the National Archives, National Museums, and so on. Uh, and then they played three games against uh, local teams from Southern Ontario. Uh, and so when thinking about uh, why did this happen, um, the idea that they have this uh, lavish tour, um, they, they travel uh, uh, hundreds of kilometers to play hockey seems kind of outside of the normal narrative that we have about the residential school system. 
Um, that's one of deprivation uh, and trouble, uh, of trauma, uh, and so on. And so this become an interesting way to try to think about well, what role was hockey trying, uh, what purpose uh, did, the, did the school and did the school system have uh, with hockey and why did they go about this lavish tour uh, in particular because uh, the residential school system became known for being um, uh, severely uh, underfunded. And so cold buildings, not enough clothes, malnourished uh, children and poor diets and so on, again, become an important part of, of that, that tour. And so I'd say there's probably a couple of main ways that we began to think about uh, this tour. And the first one was uh, its intent was to teach the boys about uh, the, de the development uh, and the benefits uh, of civilized society. And so the residential school system as a whole um, had a function um, to try to uh, develop and civilize uh, these indigenous youth uh, to kind of uh, get rid of uh, their indigenous culture, their connection to land, their connection to community, and replace them with a different set of ideals, uh, knowledges and values. And so part of this tour was again showing them uh, the benefits of civilized society, these uh, parts of Canadian society which are held up uh, as, as important to our civilization in terms of the museums and so on, and to participate uh, in Canada's national game. And so it was designed to, uh, to again show these boys that there, uh, how much um, uh, there is to this new kind of civilized world, which is the world that the, the school intended them to, um, to develop to and to aspire to. There's kind of a second uh, element that we uh, saw with this, and that is it was part of, uh, we see kind of a public relations um, uh, effort by uh, the Department of Indian Affairs uh, and the Anglican Church, which was uh, the, uh, the church that was running this particular school. And it was to show off uh, the benefits and the successes uh, of the Indian residential school system uh, to the Canadian public. Uh, and so it was, as I mentioned before, a system with a lot of troubles and problems, uh, but they kind of used uh, hockey and these young boys in this tour as a way to provide evidence of how successful residential schooling was. So they're still very much, the church and the government still very much believed in the value of residential school education, and they used this uh, to try to uh, show the public of all the good work that they've been doing, and try to reframe the discussion about the residential school system, uh, which was uh, largely understood uh, as a failure. Uh, and so uh, being able to, um, to not just uh, tell the public in terms of uh, academics are going well, the, the pupils are well behaved and disciplined and so on, but uh, by playing hockey, not only could they connect to the Canadian public, uh, but the public could quite literally see in action um, the development of these young boys, how organized they were, how disciplined they were, they listened to their coach, they played as a team, they were cooperative, uh, they gave their all. Many of these character traits and ideals that we associate uh, with sport uh, that were also associate, associated with the development of becoming a civilized person, um, they could be exhibited right in the front um, of the public eye as they kind of uh, uh, watched and saw them and heard and read about uh, them playing hockey. So I think there was a public relations element there uh, to try to show how good the school was. But uh, uh, for us in our interpretation um, uh, of this particular uh, hockey tour, um, it served to kind of hide many of the problems. And so uh, 
staying at a fancy hotel, having nice meals, meeting dignitaries was very different uh, to life uh, back at residential school, uh, again with abuse, away from their families, um, hungry, cold, uh, sick, and so on. And so in some ways, I, I think that it, it tried, in some ways it covered up uh, many of uh, the problems with the residential school in their efforts to try to promote um, the, the, the successes um, that the church and the government wanted to, teach, to show the public. So there you have it. Hockey is a cover-up for the abuses of residential schools in Canada. Again, that was Brayden Tahiwi of Lakehead University speaking to us from Thunder Bay, Ontario. The systemic racism and colonialism inflicted in the residential schools and wielded through hockey is still present in the sport today, but I'm going to get back to that in just a bit. As shocking as it is that hockey was used in this way, I for one still love this game. And so do thousands of Indigenous people from communities all across Turtle Island. I was at the Alberta Native Hockey Championships in Edmonton last April, and you could just feel the enthusiasm and pride as boys and girls teams from across the province went head-to-head, not to mention the talent. But then something caught my eye while I was in the stands taking in a game. Just in front of me was a proud dad, there to cheer on his kid's team, and he was wearing a jacket with the kid's team's logo on it. It took me by surprise, and so I just had to snap a photo of it. His kid's team name was the Kanai Little Chiefs, and their logo was exactly the same as the Chicago Blackhawks logo. Then I started noticing this was a trend throughout the tournament, with team names like the Chiefs, Tomahawks, Warriors, and so many different knockoffs of the Blackhawks logo. One team was even wearing a jersey with some version of the infamous Chief Wahoo of the Cleveland Indians from Major League Baseball. It kind of blew my mind because for the last several years, there's been a huge movement to get professional sports teams who use Indigenous mascots to change their logos and names. The most visible of these campaigns has been against Washington's football team. There's also, of course, Edmonton's football team, Cleveland's baseball team, and really shamefully too many to name. If all these racist colonial mascots worn by non-native hockey teams are cultural appropriation... What I was seeing at the Alberta Native Hockey Championships can really only be described as cultural reappropriation. I know someone else is into reappropriating indigenous mascotry to make a statement against racist symbols in sports, and he's specifically doing it with the Chicago Blackhawks in hockey. My next guest is Justin Lewis. Justin is from the Samson Cree Nation of Musquatchie, Alberta, and now lives in the Coast Salish territories of Vancouver. He's one of the co-founders of the awesome indigenous clothing company, Section 35, and they put out a whole line of clothing to take aim at the Chicago Blackhawks logo and other native mascots and sports. Let's get to that interview now. And so, of course, like you've got this line, it's called Kill Mascots that you guys have been doing with uh, Santiago X, who's an indigenous artist based in Chicago. And um, I mean, one of the the first pieces I think that, that you guys came out with, with Santiago X, was a knockoff of the Chicago Blackhawks logo, which, of course, we wanted to talk with you about that because this is a hockey podcast. So it's a really amazing image. It's it's kind of like it's a knockoff 
but it's the skull of a mascot. And it's got the phrase, kill mascots, save the people, which is, of course, a reference to that phrase, kill the Indian, save the child. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about that. Um, you know, I'll go right back to the very start. And, and the first time I saw that image, uh, I'd been following him for some time, you know, before the company started. And I he had uh, that painting and it was, it, you know, compared to the one we're doing, it's a little different, but it was more Blackhawks colors and it, it was more in tune with the actual logo. And so I bought that painting off him and I had that for a while and, I, and you know, I'd bought some stuff off him and stayed in touch with him. And I said, hey, we should collaborate on some clothing. I got this project coming out and he was really interested to hear more. And, you know, he had told me when you're ready, you know, let's talk. And when we got going, uh that was one of the first pieces I, I was like, well, what if we did like a, a collection based around this stuff? And he was all about it. We changed, obviously we changed it slightly with some colors and stuff just to be careful around, you know, proprietary rights and all that kind of stuff with using other logos. There's always a risk of, you know, copyright infringement and that kind of stuff. And so we, we got that logo down and then it just kind of turned into, okay, what's the, the theme and, you know, we've been talking about, you know, honoring you, how people like to say, oh, we're honoring you and this and that with, with native mascots. And Santiago just kind of had this kill mascots, you know, and, you know, so we were working with that and it just kind of grew into kill mascots, save the people. And it, it really kind of rang with us. And so we built a, a collection around that. And, you know, I created some pretty cool pieces that I thought, you know, at the time, people would catch people's attention. We were a new company. We hadn't even been out a year. So it was like, well, let's put something out that really kind of <laughs> catches people's attention. And, you know, it was by far the one collection, you know, that kind of really solidified us out there and got people's attention. And, you know, we still have a lot of requests for that stuff. And it sold out, like, I think most of that collection sold out in the first two days we released it. Mm. So it's just kind of grown from there. And, you know, we've done different variations on it. We just released a new version this uh, winter with uh, a different mascot. So we've moved on to the Redskins and we've done some stuff, uh, not with Santiago, but ourselves with uh, the Cleveland Indians mascot. So it's just, you know, a little bit of everything that we do, but that was kind of the the first part of the Kill Mascots that really got us going and how it started and came about with Santiago. So actually, I'm I'm glad you brought up like the other stuff you guys have been doing around uh, the Cleveland Indians and the Washington uh, NFL team that so many people find their name is actually so racist, like they can't even say it, like myself included. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and what we've seen like over the last few years has been this like really amazing movement, uh, you know, with like the hashtag uh, change the mascot um, or like not your mascot. And there's been widespread protests against these racist anti-Indigenous mascots in sports, uh, you know, particularly, like I said, revolving around the team in D.C., but not so much against the Chicago Blackhawks. And I'm wondering why you think that that might be. Um, And I've thought about that a lot. That's a good question. I think, you know, part of it, I think maybe the math, you know, just the image of it, it's not as, you know, I don't find it as you know, is caricature like, you know, it's not as much as like an over-exaggeration of, of a native person. It, you know, it's, it's probably one of the, the, the less offensive looking mascots, if, if I might say that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and the name itself, right? You know, there's not a reference to a racial slur, um, but at the same time, it's still a, you know, there's still a a misrepresentation and dehumanizing element to you know native imagery there, right? And I think also hockey is a big, you know, I mean, hockey is a it's a it's a huge thing at least in Canada and in our our communities right it's it's a big part of our communities and it has been for many years mm-hmm. can you elaborate on that thought a bit more like i mean it's been around for so long but like sometimes people argue like you know the redskins name has been there for so long we can't we can't change it so yeah you know why why wouldn't it be the same you with know, the blackhawks you know i th- i think part of it is is going back it, it you know in a different time, you know, it was really cool to have, there, there appeared to be some representation of indigenous people there, right? It was like, wow, there's a, there's an image of one of us, you know, on a hockey jersey, you know, and, and that's cool. And we still have a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of conversation that ends up, you know, when we share stuff is like, oh, it's just a mascot. You guys need to get over it. And even people in our own communities are like, oh, I'm not offended by that. You know, I, I like the logo. So, Everybody has, I think, their own their own opinion on it. But I also think that the way it is right now, you know, Washington and, and Cleveland have gotten a lot more um, press and coverage on the mascot issue. And I think part of it has to do with the, the names and, and the actual appearance of the mascot. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's just my own opinion. I don't really, really know why, but... Um, Chicago is definitely one that kind of, you know, I think flew under the radar for a long time. And I think maybe that's part of why, you know, the, the first part of our collection really kind of caught people's attention is because nobody had really, you know, on a, I guess on a level that we have, have done anything with that. Right. And there's been a conversation about re you know, working with indigenous people to redo mascots and that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I can't really say for sure why, you know, it, it's that way, but you know, that can only be my mm-hmm. speculation. So, I mean, I was going to ask, like, as an indigenous person yourself, who's a fan, who's played sports, how, how does it feel mm-hmm. to like look around and, and see like your people represented like this in logos and in, in mascots and team names? Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think my, my opinion of it has changed, you know, as I've gotten older and I've become more aware of, you know, a lot of the issues surrounding our people and you know the struggles and and understanding the conversation that's happening you know i know when i was younger it was i thought it was cool you know i was like oh there's a native guy on that hat i want that hat you know because i'm native and then as you get older and you start to understand and for me like my appearance you know i have a lot of you know i don't look like the stereotypical native of pretty fair skin and you know, I've, my whole life I've had to, to answer questions regarding, oh, are you even native or you don't look native or, you know, all the, the kind of stuff that comes with that. So, you know, for me, understanding that like, why, you know, our, a lot of our people don't even look like that. It's, it's just kind of far out in left field and it makes no sense. It's 2017, you know, it's time to like get with the program. So with this line of, remixes of sports logos that you guys have put out kill mascots what are you kind of hoping that might achieve with people who are well maybe not necessarily people who are wearing it because you know they might be uh the kind of like 
preaching to the converted as it were, but you know, people, people who see this line of clothing, what are you hoping that the message that gets across will be? Well, I think obviously the, the, the main part is it's a conversation starter and, and to kind of draw awareness to, you know, and I think there's a lot of people out there still who don't understand the issues behind native mascotry. Right. So it's, it's, in the first place, it's kind of, it draws your attention to the actual issue. And then from there, there's conversation that happens. And we've, you know, we've got a lot of people who email us and message us on our social media and, you know, and they're non-Indigenous and they, they, they get it, they understand. And they're, they're like, they want to wear it too. And they're worried they're going to offend somebody. And I'm like, no, I think if you believe in the message and you're, you're trying to, you know, spread the message, then, then by all means, wear it, support it, you know? So I think that is, you know, I guess that would be the the main thing for for why we put it out. You know, at the end of the day, you're not going to always change people's mind. There's going to be people who will never change their mind on that topic, right? So, mm-hmm. but if you can at least, you know, spread the message, you know, reach reach the masses with it, and this design and these collections have reached far beyond where we ever thought. You know, so it's cool to see that that thing take take off and find its own wings. As we start to wind down this first episode of Changing on the Fly, I think it's important to look towards the future of Native hockey players at the pro level. Watching amazing Native players like Bridget LaRock in the Olympics or Carrie Price of the Montreal Canadiens, it's incredible to think of the adversity that so many of their ancestors went through, but also how they're inspiring a new generation of young Native athletes. To come back to the book Indian Horse that we were talking about earlier, and the main character Saul, he works his way up almost to the NHL level, but because of the racism he faces on the ice, he ends up getting into fight after fight. This story of Saul mirrors real-life native NHLers who are often pigeonholed into the enforcer role. People like Gino Ojek or Jordan Tutu. John Valentine, in a piece called New Racism and Old Stereotypes in the National Hockey League, takes a close look to find that indigenous players have disproportionately filled the role of enforcer, or the guys that like to drop the gloves and fight. This is because, as Valentine puts it, the role of the enforcer aligned with the aboriginal stereotype of the savage, was used to intimidate, protect, and entertain. However, some would argue this stereotype is changing. The last guest we'll hear from today is Jason Brennan. Jason's roots are in the Algonquin community of Kittigan Zibi, Quebec, and he's the director of the exciting TV series Hit the Ice, about native hockey players on APTN, or the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Here, he talks about today's native athlete and how things are getting better for up-and-coming players. I mean, nobody can dispute the fact that it's better than it was. Uh, just because there's so many more guys that are making it to the NHL or playing pro. And right now, there's a really nice uh, group of young players that are, are, are up-and-coming that are, you know... It looked like so many years ago, most of the native players that made it to, to, to pro were, were either were there to fight mostly. Uh, so that was kind of like the prototype that was built, where you know I'm going to get an Indian, you know a big strong Indian to, to to go and fight in the corners and that type of stuff. So that's kind of been pushed aside now. You're seeing these guys come in like uh, Ethan Bear, who's going to play with, probably with the Oilers, uh, you know, next year. That's already a, 
You know, he won uh, WHL Defenseman of the Year last year. He's he's a great player. I mean, Brandon Montour had a great playoff last year with the Ducks. I mean, you've got Carey Price, who's who's arguably the best goalie in the world. So, I mean, there's not the native hockey player now isn't isn't you know isn't uh, stereotyped into one role. So a lot of the younger guys now are saying, well, I don't have to be that kid that's going to fight all the time, which is a step forward. So I think, I think, you know, yeah, maybe before it was it was kind of left behind because if, if a, a, a team was willing to take a gamble on an, on, on an indigenous player, it had to be a specific type of player. I don't think that exists anymore. But it's still, like I said in the beginning of the interview, it's still hard to make it to the pro levels because there's so many players out there, you know. But but the ones that do make it, they look at that, you know, they they've gone through maybe a bit more adversity, which allows them to be even better. All right, so there we go. That was Jason Brennan from APTN's Hit the Ice. We'll post a link in the show notes where you can watch all the episodes online. It's definitely worth checking out. We'll leave you with one final thought, and hopefully it's going to be an uplifting one for such a heavy topic as colonialism. In 2015, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada where we examined and dealt with the horrors of residential schools and genocide against Native people. One of the important things that came out of that commission was a document of calls to action, 94 tangible things we can all do to start to right the wrongs of our history. Within those 94 calls to action, there are five that touch directly on sports. Sports and reconciliation, specifically with regards to hockey, is so crucial because throughout this episode we've examined how deep colonialism runs in Canada's game. I'm not going to read all those calls to action here, but I'm just going to share one of my favorites, and it's something that I hope is going to set the tone of this podcast as we move forward. It goes, We call upon all levels of government, in collaboration with Aboriginal peoples, sports hall of fames, and other relevant organizations, so hockey podcasts, I suppose, to provide public education that tells the national story of Aboriginal athletes in history. With Changing on the Fly, I'm hoping to bring you more on the stories of people like Fred Sasakamoose, Bridget LaRocque of Team Canada, Reggie Leach, Chief Wilton Littlechild, and many other Native hockey players. Because if hockey is going to be Canada's game, and if we're going to move forward together, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, then we need to fight colonialism and racism in this sport. If you enjoyed this episode of Changing on the Fly, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can hear all the back episodes and all future upcoming episodes. Music in this episode is by The Kendalls, DJ Spooky, A Tribe Called Red, and Ilego. For more info on the podcast, find us online at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com or email us at changingontheflypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Aaron Lakoff. Thanks for listening. All right, so that was episode one of Changing on the Fly. 
I really hope you enjoyed it. And I'm so excited to be bringing you a whole bunch more episodes in the weeks and months to come. Episode two should be out in just a few weeks. But in the meantime, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, really wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please support us. We have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. You can sign up there for as little as $1 a month. And you can also get access to advanced episodes, a mixtape, and other goodies. Or if you want to send a one-time donation, hit us up with a PayPal transfer of any amount to changingonthefly.podcast at gmail.com. Lastly, I want to send a huge thank you to all our current Patreon supporters, Aiden, Anne, Grill, Jeremy, Nick, and Sam. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and keep your stick on the ice.